Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School Podcast for the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany of our Lord, February 4th, 2024. And as we continue to go through 120 Bible stories, a textbook put out by Concordia Publishing House, today we're looking at the story of the birth of Moses found in Exodus chapters 1 and 2, and in the textbook on page 48. We concluded last time with Jacob blessing his sons, or at least prophesying about them. Not a lot of his words sound like actual blessings. And then we go from Genesis to Exodus, and a lot of time has passed, namely about 400 years. And we'll be reading through Exodus chapter 1 in a moment, but a lot of groundwork is laid for the rest of the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 1. Remember, because Joseph, by the grace of God, saved Egypt and really the known world during the time of famine... Pharaoh welcomed Joseph's brothers and his father Jacob to Egypt, gave them great land on which they could be shepherds, and and made them a home. Now, in the intervening time, of course, pharaohs die and new pharaohs take their place, and a successor king has uh, perceived the Israelites to be a threat to Egypt And so he has had them enslaved. Although they are far from the promised land, and now they are slaves, the Israelites only grow more numerous to the point where in Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh actually commands the death of infant Hebrew boys. Now, all of this is setting up a type, a metaphor, if you will, that persists throughout the Old Testament and into the New, where Egypt comes to symbolize enslavement to sin and the enemies of God's people, whether that's the Israelites of the Old Testament or the church, the new Israel in the New Testament, So Egypt symbolizes bondage and oppression. The wilderness will come to symbolize life in this world. And the promised land, of course, is a type of heaven. So in the big picture of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the people of Israel are taken out of bondage and slavery into the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And you and I have been rescued out of enslavement, bondage to sin. This world is our wilderness where God still cares for us, but it's less than pleasant a lot of the time. But we are bound for the promised land of heaven. All right. Now, this this type, this metaphor begins with Exodus chapter 1. So let's begin there with chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, 
Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, he shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the children, the male children, live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So we have in this opening section how Joseph and his generation die out and the people of Israel are enslaved and treated ruthlessly by the Egyptians. And then we have sort of the, the, the nodder of this bondage in that the king of Egypt declares that the male babies born to the Israelites, to the Hebrews, are to be put to death. Now, 120 Bible Stories notes that these two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, are commanded by Pharaoh to kill the infant boys. But because they fear God, they disobey Pharaoh and let the male babies live. Now, this is a clear explanation, or a clear example, rather, of Acts chapter 5, where the apostles declare that we as Christians must obey God rather than men. When some human being gives us a command that contradicts what God commands, we do what God says, even if it means suffering. And this is what these two Hebrew midwives are doing. 
And the Bible adds that, uh, that for their work in saving infants, God deals well with them and gives them families. Now, this is a uh, challenging bit of scripture in a lot of ways, and probably not for young children in Sunday school. The short version of this is that um, as Christians, on the one hand, we condemn moral relativism. And briefly, what I mean by that is that moral relativism states that if you have two options that are both bad, the better option is automatically a good thing to do. And therefore, it's always okay to do a bad thing if it's better than worse things. We condemn that idea because bad things are bad things, and moral relativism seeks to turn wrongs into rights. However, we do recognize that there are greater and lesser evils, and sometimes God's people are left with only those choices. So when there's a, only a greater or a lesser evil, as Christians, we go for the lesser evil. It doesn't make it not evil. We still confess it before the Lord and we plead for forgiveness. And we trust that we're saved not because we've made all sorts of great choices in life. We're saved by the grace of God. And we do our best to avoid greater evils that break God's word more severely, or do more harm to our neighbor. In this case, the Hebrew midwives have the choice of either killing infants or lying to Pharaoh, and they choose lying to Pharaoh over taking life. Now, a lie is a lesser evil than murder, and so that might seem like a no-brainer, on the other hand, that lie carries a huge consequence that they are exposed, for they will likely be executed themselves. So the midwives take a great risk here to obey God and save these infants. At any rate, this sets up the situation that when Moses is born, he already has a death sentence as do all male Hebrew babies. And this takes us to the start of chapter 2, verse 1, in which we read, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. 
Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse a child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So this is a pretty straightforward account of of Moses' birth and first few months. And uh, in the Lord's working, far from being killed by the Egyptians, Moses is actually drawn from the river by the maidservant of Pharaoh's daughter. So he's, he's drawn out of the water by the Egyptians. Rather than killed, Pharaoh's daughter adopts him on the spot. And Moses' sister, older sister Miriam, arranges for Moses' mother to take care of Moses and to nurse him until he is weaned, so that instead of being killed by the Egyptians... Now the Egyptians are paying Moses' mother to raise Moses for Pharaoh's daughter. One of those exquisite ironies of how the Lord uses the world for the good of his people. One other tidbit in here is that in English translations, the basket of Moses is translated as basket because it's made out of woven reeds. So, of course, it's a basket. And, of course, you know, waterproof with pitch and bitumen. But the word basket there doesn't just mean something woven together with reeds. It's the same word as the word for Noah's ark. So Noah and his family of seven others get in the ark with the uh, two of every kind of animal at least. And there they, uh, they are safe during the flood when the wicked are wiped out. And then afterwards they're released back into the world. Here Moses, who is threatened by death because of Pharaoh's edict, he is put into his own little one baby ark. And he is floated on the water until he is discovered and delivered back into a world, but he too is safe from death, and he lives for God's purposes another day. Just a reminder that um, the area of the church building where the pews are, where the congregation stands and sits during worship, that's called the nave from Latin for boat, It's your ark where, despite the fact that you're living in a world that's falling apart, the Lord is still with you, gives you his grace, and preserves you in the midst of a world that's dying, and he promises you eternal life. All right, so Moses is delivered, he's weaned, now he's growing up in Pharaoh's household as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. And we continue with chapter 2, verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. 
and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So now Moses is about 40 years old. He's more than grown up into his teens. He's lived about a third of his life there in Egypt. And now for the next third of his life, he will be a shepherd in Midian. But although he's been part of Pharaoh's household for 40 years, he hasn't forgotten where he came from. He hasn't become an an Egyptian who wants the Israelites enslaved. So one day, he sees one of his fellow Hebrews, one of his fellow Israelites, being mistreated by an Egyptian, and he defends the slave, he defends the one who was unjustly oppressed by striking the Egyptian, killing him, and hiding him in the sand. Now, hopefully this story doesn't get out because murdering your fellow Egyptian would be, of course, murder, and Pharaoh would have something to say about that. So Moses is checked, nobody's looking, everything should be okay, except that by the next day, the word has spread. People know that Moses has killed an Egyptian, so when he breaks up a fight between two of his fellow Hebrews, they tell him that the fight is none of his business, and they say, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian?" So this is a bit of a foreshadowing of what life will be like when Moses leads the people out of Egypt. Here he's tried to do them good by killing an Egyptian to defend their lives, and they respond by saying, you know, stay out of our business. We reject you. Are you our prince? Are you our judge? Now, in the wilderness, time and time again, the Israelites will reject Moses, They'll rebel against him and rebel against God. And the irony is that there it's plain that God has made them not quite a, has made Moses not quite a prince, but certainly the leader of the people. And God has made Moses a judge over them. It is he who adjudicates all matters. But even when God declares that Moses is their leader, they will still rebel against him. At any rate, This serves for the impetus that moves Moses from Egypt to Midian. If he stays in Egypt, Pharaoh will kill him, and so Moses flees to Midian. Verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. 
The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses meets seven daughters of the priest of Midian by the well. He defends them from predatory shepherds. He waters their flock. So once again, he sets himself up as, or he reveals himself to be rather, one who defends the oppressed against the oppressor. So between this and his defending the Israelite against the Egyptian before, he's, there's already a foreshadowing of how Moses will spend the rest of his life as God's instrument. He'll be God's spokesman and prophet and judge to defend and deliver Israel rather from the hands of the Egyptians and to carry them through the wilderness towards the promised land. So now Moses has, uh, has a wife, Zipporah, one of the daughters of the priest of Midian. He has a son named Gershom, which means sojourner in Hebrew, or sounds a lot like it. And meanwhile, things continue in Egypt. So we read in verse 23 of Exodus 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. All right, so meanwhile, as as Moses works as a shepherd in Midian, as he is uh, becoming more seasoned by God for the task that lies ahead, the Israelites still suffer, and they cry out to God for help, and God hears, and it says God remembers his covenant, and it says God sees the people of Israel, and God knows. And that is true, and that is a blessed thing, and let's make sure we get this right. When it says God remembers his covenant with Abraham, it doesn't mean that it had slipped his mind. It doesn't mean that God had forgotten his covenant or that he was just waiting for the people to remind him of it. When it says God remembers his covenant means he still remembers his promise because he would never forget his promise. And now it is time for him to act upon that promise. Likewise, when God sees and knows the people of Israel, it's not like he's forgotten who they are or what they're like. It means he still sees them, he still knows them, and now it's time for him to act on his promise, deliver them from Egypt, 
and get them back to the promised land. So, the plan is about to take effect for the Exodus. Moses is about to be sent by God back to Egypt to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. We'll get that next time around. This text, the Bible story for this Sunday, is really about the formation of Moses before he is called by God to lead. And he's in such a unique position to do so because God has saved his life as an infant, raised him up in the household of the Egyptians, and then moved him from being a a privileged son of Pharaoh to being a wandering shepherd in Midian. So he's also used to the wilderness life. He learns to defend the oppressed. And soon God will send him as his servant uh, to deliver the people of Israel. Bear in mind as another lesson for this that uh, Israel is not released from slavery right away. The Israelites have been slaves for 400 years. So sometimes when we are enduring one trial or another, we get antsy after a few days that God might not hear. But even when it takes 400 years, God remembers, God sees, and God knows. So you can always take heart that God has not forgotten you. All right, in this preparatory uh, Bible story setting up the Exodus, do we find things here that point to Christ? And there are a couple themes here that, uh, that, that do uh, foreshadow the coming of the Christ. I mentioned before that Egypt is kind of a metaphor of bondage of sin and, and, and oppressors of God's people. So as the story begins, a little bit more on that, um, Egypt and Israel are types of the forces of evil on the one hand and the New Testament church on the other. So, for instance, um, Egypt is sometimes in the Old Testament called Rahav, or in English, Rahab. And uh, and that's a reference to a sea monster. And in Isaiah 51, verse 9, for instance, um, it's this lurking sea monster that, that oppresses God's people. And, uh, and it, it, it actually has the power to lead the world away from Christ. So when Moses leads the people across the Red Sea on dry ground, the, uh, the sea monster is defeated even in the Red Sea as, as, uh, as the Lord delivers the Israelites and then drowns the Egyptians. But then throughout the Old Testament, Egypt is always lurking around like like a sea monster underwater. And time and time again, it will be a thorn in the side of the Israelites who will oppress them or betray them or fail to help them. Much as the world treats the church today, oppressing it, failing to help it, even betraying and persecuting it. But as God calls and delivers Israel out of Egypt in Exodus, so he delivers his people out of bondage to sin and into the church today. And though we live in a world hostile to Christianity, 
The church remains despite the opposition as we await deliverance to the promised land of heaven. All of this, of course, is because of Christ. For Jesus' sake, because he shed his blood for us, we are delivered out of bondage to sin. For Jesus' sake, we have God's help throughout our time in this wilderness. And for Jesus' sake, God will deliver us to the promised land of heaven in his own time. In the meantime, sin is always lurking around like that sea monster, trying to lure us back into sin, bondage to sin, and death. So we must always be on our guard to cling to Christ and his grace and his deliverance. More explicitly, Moses is a type of Christ throughout his life. Jesus has his unlikely infant bed, the manger. Moses has an unlikely cradle. It's an ark, a basket in the Nile River. Pharaoh seeks the death of Moses among the baby Hebrew boys he wants killed. Herod seeks the death of Jesus by having all the infant boys around Bethlehem killed. So it's kind of ironic that when Jesus is born, he and his family flee of all places to Egypt to escape bloodthirsty Herod. In our text today, when Moses defends his fellow Hebrews against mistreatment, they reject him for his trouble, saying he's not their prince, he's not their judge, he's not their deliverer. Even though Jesus comes to save, John 1 verse 11 says, His own receive him not, just like the Israelites rejected Moses. Finally, then, we have this this wonderful passage in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 to 27. Because while Exodus makes quick work of Moses' childhood, and Moses growing up years before he becomes the deliverer, just like, by the way, the Gospels make short work of Jesus' childhood and young adulthood until his baptism. Hebrews chapter 11 takes some time, a significant four or five verses, five verses, to talk about this and talk about how Moses did these things by faith in Christ, and by the grace of God. So I'll close with with this reading from Hebrews 11, verses 23 to 27. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. 
What a great portrayal of the life of faith. Moses' parents are not afraid of the king's edict that Hebrew boys must be killed because God has given them a beautiful son and they will work to protect him. Moses then, by faith, rejects being part of Pharaoh's family, rejects the fleeting pleasures of sin that he would enjoy in Egypt because he considers the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. That's quite a statement that long before Jesus is born, Moses trusts that as Christ will be reproached to be our Savior, Moses will suffer reproach as well by fleeing from Pharaoh's household, but he does it by faith so that he might be God's instrument, so that he might have the confidence of God's favor and grace and life both now and forevermore. God grant that we not live in fear, but rather live by faith and delight to, uh, to abide by God's word, even when it means reproach. For the Lord will come again in glory, and he will deliver us from this wilderness, this Egypt. All right, that's a quick look at our story, the birth of Moses from Exodus chapters 1 and 2. God grant you every blessing as you meditate upon it further. God grant you every good gift if you are teaching this to others. And until we speak again, the Lord order your days and your deeds in his peace. Amen.